You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty. Oh, to stimulate your thinking. You're listening. You're listening to Intellectual Erection. Intellectual, intellectual, intellectual Erection. Welcome to another episode of Intellectual Erection. I'm your host, Patrick, and today I'm speaking with Jaden. Literally, I'm not gonna lie, this part kills me still. Like, three days before I was supposed to get surgery, quarantine started. Jaden talks about what it's like being in transition as a queer trans human. And we get into some of the politics around identity and the body, especially now as activism from the Black Lives Matter movement is still ongoing and the body becomes a site of political meaning and activism against oppression. This is the launch of Intellectual Erection Season 3. So we're in the third year of it. There is a lot happening this season. I have a bunch of interviews for you that you are going to be in love with. So stick around and as always, listen, subscribe, review, and most of all, enjoy. I'm sitting here today with... Jaden. Hi, Jaden. Hello. Excited. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Before we dive in, the first thing I'm going to ask is what you do. I don't know how relevant that is to our discussion, but if you don't want to talk about work, you could talk about what you do outside of that. What are your passions? Cool. I'm definitely not working in COVID times, but <laughs> knowing myself, I can't stay still. So I'm currently about to go back to school for second year for social service work. Um, and I'm calling myself an amateur facilitator. Um, and uh, I guess aside from that, I am in pursuit of sexual liberation now that I'm in the middle of transitioning. So that is Woo! the TLDR. And that's, uh, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today is transitioning primarily. And I guess this, yeah, this will be a sort of interesting place to start for both of us because it sounds like you're about to engage far more in the sex positive communities to come. Hopefully. So I love, I love seeing like the, the up and comers, if you will. I don't want to call you new because I don't think you're new necessarily. <laughs> I've dabbled. I've dabbled. Yeah, dipped dabbled. my feet in. Yes. There you go. Well, I think you know what's coming. The next question. <laughs> it's the, yeah, the origin question. <laughs> Oh, I've studied, I've studied. I knew this was coming, but I did, you know, listening to other people talk about their their root memories, um, if you will. I was like, there's so many that came to mind. Mm. I have to say, I really resonated with uh, what Will said uh, in terms of, you know, anime and hentai being kind of the thing that exposes you to all these other fetishes and interests and things that you can explore that you didn't even know existed. I would say that's the earliest I can think of. And that led me into um, live tellings of fan fiction in elementary school in the corner of the yard. And I had a little circle of probably now queers. None of us knew we were queer at the time. And I stood up and I was just like, who's your favorite character? Who's your favorite character? And I would ship them together and I would just 
make up some kind of erotica or what I thought was erotica for my young mind. Uh, and people would just be riveted. We were just in the corner having a little weird hentai fan fiction moment. Together. Oh, that's cute. So that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a reference to Will William Lavinia's episode? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And how old were you when you went to your, your hentai explorations? I am terrible at remembering what age I was when anything happens, but it would have been the age you are when you're in grade four or five. That's what I remember. That's when like my whole world was turned upside down. <laughs> Honestly, I, I'm not, I don't know much about hentai or, or too much anime. I mean, the only thing I ever watched was Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon, but just yesterday, somebody, <laughs> well, somebody asked me to watch this uh, show called um, Food Wars and oh that's so etchy yeah i love that show i've already watched it. i'm a double tourist so <laughs> I, I just found out what that means the etchy the like everything's super sexualized but not pornographic yeah i mean why is that not how people experience food when i eat a meal that's like my clothes are definitely exploding off my body i'm having a whole like pleasure moment it's yeah, oh my you're God. Not experiencing that it's very entertaining it. it's very entertaining yeah, yeah. So then I guess the, the second part of the origin question is how you got involved in the sex positive communities. And I guess you know what I mean by that. Yes, I would say many drunk nights, a curious mind. <laughs> and I guess just very limited concepts of uh, boundaries. I just wanted to explore everything and anything, regardless of if I knew it was something I was going to be into once I was in it. Um, so I would say a lot of nights just showing up to a party, deciding who I found attractive. And my goal was to sleep with that person by the end of the night. And threesomes came out of that very random hookups like I mean met someone at a bar or on the street had an experience felt grateful that protection was used and then moved <laughs> on with my life you know so <laughs> and that like was back when I was sleeping with cis men so that was a very different time of my life oh lord <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there but you know that's how oh. that's I just threw myself in is, is the TLDR of that. All right. So what I'm hearing is you, you're grateful for the safer sex practices that you were able to engage while yes. making the mistake of sleeping with cis men. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I look back on that and I was like, damn, my standards could have been way higher. Like, damn, I was missing out on some quality sex. That was not a good time. It was not. So now you're eager to, to kind of dive a little bit further into the sex positive communities is what we kind of talked about before yes. the interview. Yes, uh, if COVID wasn't, you know, looming over our heads, I feel like I would be, you know, in hot pursuit of the next orgy party to happen in the city because it's about time. It's about time. I need it. I'm 26 going on 30. I need it. I'll hook you up with the deets after. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's really why I'm here. Exactly. Perfect. perfect. <laughs> so, okay. So let's get into it. You have recently done something that I'm very curious to to talk to you about. So you are currently, I guess, still transitioning. Is that fair to say? I am. I am transitioning. Who knows where I'm going to end up? I do not know the end goal and I am absolutely comfortable with that. So we're going to talk a little bit about transitioning, about hormone replacement therapy, testosterone in particular, and your most recent mm -hmm. development, which is top surgery. Ooh, my designer nips. Yes, let's get into it. <laughs> like, I, I will not be showing. 
You have to pay for that. <laughs> only fans, we'll link the only fans at the end. <laughs> when they go bankrupt, let's not go with let's not go with them anymore. Um, but we're, we don't we won't talk about that. But yes. Okay. So I guess what would be the first step in that process? I guess I'm curious at what point transitioning became a reality for you, and how long it's been like a dormant need, and then we'll go from Ooh. there. Yeah. So it's always a loaded question because I feel like people want to hear. Or they expect to hear, I should say that, you know, I had this big like light bulb moment and I was like, yes, I'm going to transition. I honestly didn't think I was ever going to one, take testosterone and I didn't think I was going to get top surgery. I thought I could just, I guess, wear binders for the rest of my life or just deal with it and learn to love my body. And I'm like, I realized one day that no amount of self-love was going to help me stop hyper fixating on the fact that I had chesticles that I didn't want on my body. And when your mental health starts diving and it's affecting your ability to, you know, hold a job, be in relationships, be in healthy relationships, I should say, and, you know, be able to look in the mirror and not feel nauseated at what you're looking at. Um, it starts to distort you're thinking like, at least for me, I had this kind of fractured image of what I thought I looked like in my head. And I would look at myself and it was like, I would immediately disassociate. And for anyone that doesn't know what that means, it's different for a few people, like different people. But for me, it just meant that it was like an out of body experience. I'm looking at somebody else looking at my body and not feeling like I'm actually in it. So that was kind of a everyday experience. It started to become normalized in my head. I was like, yeah, this is, this is natural, you know, just not really living in your body, not feeling like you're at home and kind of feeling like you're constantly in this in-between and you can't settle. You don't feel like you have your footing anywhere. So I guess after 25 years of dealing with that and uh, without going into heavier things, um, you know, not wanting to be here, at many points in my life, it was like, okay, what is actually going to change the quality of my life? And it just came down to getting rid of my chest, getting top surgery. And uh, testosterone was a different thing. So I can take a breather here or I can continue yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's like, it's like a two-parter. I'm definitely just absorbing your yep. answer because, so I suppose that, am I right in assuming that testosterone came before the top surgery? It did. It did. It did. Okay. So um, There's there some mm -hmm. point earlier on in your life when you began HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Yes. So this is all within the past year. So uh, deciding to do all of this just happened last year. I don't want to say it was because of or in part because of a breakup, but I went through a relationship that taught me a lot about myself. And coming out of that, I realized that I was feeling trapped. And if I didn't find some sort of freedom um, on my own, then I wasn't going to be able to live my life. I'm not going to be able to show myself self-compassion. I'm not going to be able to have a self-connection in a way that I'll ever be able to understand uh, sexual liberation or understand my body in a way that's pleasurable, that I can look at my body as my own and not just an object for other people to enjoy and not just a body that holds trauma. So I wanted to, I guess, like a fuck you to everything that I wanted to be like, reclaim my body. This is my own. 
what's going to help me do that? And I was like, well, testosterone is not a forever thing. It's not like they prescribe you and you're like, <laughs> you're in it for the rest of your life. You know, you can decide to go on and off of it. And that's something I don't see people talking about. And mm -hmm. this pertains more to people that are gender non-conforming, non-binary and the like, and, and that's where I fall. So, you know, I consider myself to be gender fluid and deciding to go on testosterone, I gave myself kind of this time limit where, you know, let me see how I feel after a year. I feel like uh, my voice has landed in a place that, you know, resonates with me and I feel comfortable, then I'll go off of it. If I get facial hair, cool. If I get all these other benefits at the time, I didn't think they were all benefits. Uh, then, you know, if I'm happy, then I'll stop. If I'm not, I'll continue. So it's not really something that I've been like, okay, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be in pursuit of reaching the other side of where testosterone takes me. Okay. So there's, there's a few things in there. First of all, it sounds like transitioning has been a very powerful experience for you in mm -hmm. reclaiming your identity. Yes. And it was probably also fraught with its own difficulties. And then testosterone, you said something really interesting there, which I've actually been very curious about is the effects of testosterone, whether or not they're permanent or temporary, depending on how long you are on hormone replacement therapy. Because I didn't yeah. know that this, this idea came up to me recently. Somebody asked me about this and I didn't know if taking testosterone for a while right? You're talking about some of the changes, right? Like your voice and facial yeah. hair. Would that last if you go off of it? Yeah. So there's a few things that they, you know, they have to walk you through when you decide to go on uh, HRT. So one of the, a few of the things that are permanent that I was partly excited about and partly not, I would say the facial hair that is going to be permanent, um, not just facial hair, body hair in general, that's permanent. So wherever you get that, that's going to be something you get to live with for the rest of your life. So that's something to consider. And as someone who is of Caribbean, Caribbean uh, lineage, I'm already hairy as fuck. So to get more hair, I was kind of like, you know what? I, I could do without the extra hair, but I'll take it if you're going to throw that my way. And, and, you know, instead of worrying about the receding hairline, which is also something they, they uh, right. warn you about, I was like, I'm not pressed about that. I could do with my hairline giving me a little more forehead space. So, <laughs> you know, give me the trail, give me the back hair. I love that. If you're gonna like give me enough armpit hair to do a little braid moment, I don't mind. <laughs> but there were certain things I was wary of. So the other things that are permanent was bottom growth. Um, that was something that we spoke about, my doctor and I, and I was kind of like, oof, am I ready for that? Is that something that's going to make me more dysphoric? Like, am I going to go from having an understanding of, you know, my vagina in a way that I'm like, okay, that's comfortable. I have familiarity with it. What is that going to change for me? Is masturbation going to be different? Um, is understanding what my turn-ons are going to change? And how is that going to work in terms of navigating that with partners and people that, you know, I choose to be intimate with? So... So if we, if we want for the, for the listeners to define bottom growth, I think I get yes. it from the context. I've not heard that, yes. term, but I assume it's probably like the clitoral area engorging and like, or get or growing is. to some degree. It is. Yeah. So exactly what you said. It's when your clitoris um, becomes more enlarged and who knows, you never know if it's going to be uh, quite noticeable or if it's just going to be just slight bottom growth that doesn't change that much. And you know, that it was something I wasn't excited about. And as it happened, I was like, okay, 
this is fun. This is fun. There's a little more sensitivity than I'm used to. And I was like, okay, this could be interesting. This could make my life a lot easier in terms of actually being able to finish faster. Um, but yeah, so that the excitement definitely grew. <laughs> Damn it. But <laughs> I'm so corny. I'm sorry. But yeah, so that, that was something <laughs> that I was um, wary about. That's permanent. And uh, the other thing your vocal change. So your voice does change. Uh, I'm at the point where I just have a little more depth, a little more richness to my voice, but it hasn't exactly changed any octaves. But that's another thing that, you know, that's why I chose to go on testosterone is that I want my voice to change in a way that's a lot deeper than I've ever been able to experience. You want to get some bass in that voice. <laughs> get some bass in that voice. You know what? I just want to like feel like I'm a top. I know I'm not going to be a top because like I am a bottom for life. Like shout out to my bottoms out there. But you can be I... what you want. You can be <laughs> what you want. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe transitioning is going to change how I identify in all those other ways in the bedroom. I don't know. But for now, I'm happy to be a sub slash bottom. Um, but you know, I feel like <laughs> just getting a little more bass in my voice would help me feel a little more masculine in a way that like, you know, I'm happy to sit in my femininity and really navigate feminine energy and not give that up in any way. But, you know, I'd like to discover what the other, the other energies out there feel like, you know? So that's, uh, that's really cool because I mean, you're in a place where you want to kind of access more than just, I guess, one dimension of identification, if you will, of gender. Yes. Because you're gender fluid, right? You want to play with some of the feminine, some of the masculine that is in your body and just kind of like work towards an identity that fits for you. And yeah. I, I, go ahead. I was just going to say that that's, that's so much, it's got such richness and complexities to it. So I wonder how you navigate that and, and what that world is like for you. Oof. This is a really good question. This is a really good question because I've been thinking about this a lot because for me at the end of the day, everything I'm choosing to do in terms of how I'm navigating my body, my sexuality, my gender identity, it's just with the end goal of feeling like I have freedom. I want freedom to accept the fact that where I'm at right now could change next month it could change in a year i don't know how i'm gonna identify a year from now two years from now five years from now i have no idea and i welcome that i'm excited about my future selves all iterations of my body as i go through not only aging in a physical sense but aging in a spiritual sense and and what that even looks like so right now i think i'm in a phase where um i'm just very curious i want to be able to explore all the ways that feminine energy and masculine energy and other energies that we don't even have terminology for that we don't understand in a Western sense um, that exists, right? There are so many cultures and there are so many places around the world where they have an understanding of being trans and gender fluid and gender non-conforming in a way that I'm not aware of yet. And that's something I really want to access. Um, what does that look like for me? That's really, I really like that question. I think for right now, what I can say is that it's just feeling like I have agency in this body and that whatever I choose to share with the world is going to be oof, owning my power. 
and being able to have an understanding what of what self-connection actually means. And that looks like owning my pleasure, owning my access to the erotic, owning my access to setting boundaries, to really expanding my knowledge of consent in all the ways that I wasn't taught. And especially as someone who's moving towards being perceived a little more masculine, um, depending on how I present, I have to be even more mindful of that, right? I am hyper aware of the fact that navigating bathrooms is about to change for me, you know, and navigating relationships, navigating dating when I walk down the street at night, you know, and if a femme or woman um, is passing by or I'm passing them by, are they going to feel safe? You know what I mean? So these are things I'm thinking about and especially the consent piece. So, but I feel like this is also going to give me access to spaces where I may be respected and listened to by cis men in a way that they may not give that space to femmes and women to educate them. So I really want to use this time of my life and, and this identity that I have chosen to, I want to be able to take advantage of the fact that I am living in a way that people may perceive as more masculine. Um, I, I, think I, <laughs> I think I hear what you're saying is, is just yeah. like, uh, taken, you, you get the opportunity to be taken seriously in a, mm-hmm. in, in a patriarchy, right? Yes. By performing masculinity in typically cis male spaces because then even if they're not aware of it, they might lend you a little bit more credibility. Your voice mm-hmm. might carry more weight, both, yeah. with, both with the bass and, and with the appearance, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it makes sense to me what you're saying. And it sounds like your ability to access your body, right? Mentally, mm-hmm. physically, all of it in an autonomous way to be creative mm-hmm. with, your, with your gender and your expression of it is mm-hmm. something that's powerful and that has been an important thing for you. And it sounds like also very important to your mental health because you're saying over the last year, you've made this decision, which has been challenging, but ultimately it seems like mm-hmm. it's been rewarding in offering you that autonomy that previously maybe you didn't experience. You are so good at summarizing my chaotic <laughs> train of thought. That was excellent. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I'm blushing. <laughs> I'm swooning. I'm swooning. You really get me. <laughs> well, um, I've had the benefit yeah. of, of doing this with lots and lots of people on this, on this podcast. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's honestly, it's been so rewarding from my end to just hear these stories and be able to to listen in a way that maybe in everyday life I don't. So like this here is, is something special yeah. for me too. Yeah. So what I wanted to say then is, or ask you rather is because you mentioned Will's episode, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about that even before we started recording, there was something that I brought up in that episode about a podcast that I had heard that talks specifically about testosterone and I mean, that podcast was old, it was entertaining, it was funny at times, and there were some issues that, you know, I had with it that I discussed with Will, but the most prevalent aspect of that entire podcast, why I remembered it for so many years after hearing it so long ago, was the, the dude that had transitioned was talking about 
taking testosterone for the first mm-hmm. time and experiencing this carnal desire that his body wasn't used to. Now, yeah. I wonder for you, I don't know, I know there's different dosages and, and all that, but for you, how has testosterone been sexually? Oh, ah, this is why I'm so annoyed that I'm only four months in to a biweekly dose. So I'm doing what's considered a micro dose. So I do 0.25 mils uh, every two weeks. And that ends up being 50 mil in a month. And other people just start at 100 mil or 50 and then oh, go wow. up to 100. So, and some people do it weekly, some people do it bi weekly. It's very different for uh, everyone. So, for myself, I'm doing a really small dose. So, I'm just hitting the four month mark now. <sighs> I'm upset that this is the year that, you know, we're in a global pandemic because <laughs> it would have been so exciting to really enjoy this second puberty I'm going through because, you know, there's all the negatives to it in terms of like, you know, I got an explosion of uh, second puberty acne and, you know, all this like weird shit in terms of hair popping up, you know, on my fucking knuckles and my toes and shit. And I'm like, damn, is this what it's like to live like a cis man or some shit? Like, this is not the vibe. But on the other, (laughs) you know, you know what? It'll be cute. It'll be cute. I like contrast it with some uh some press-ons or something but i uh i feel like the libido thing is something people are always curious about and i have to you know just put it out there that where i'm at now in terms of you know how i navigate my sexual energy is i consider myself to be demisexual and you know i've placed myself at different spots on the asexual spectrum and I think that's where I'm comfortable for now. So for myself, it does take a bit of time for me to get going. I don't feel like, you know, at this point in my life, I meet people and I'm immediately like, yeah, we could hook up tonight. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. I got to like pick out your brain a bit. I got to get to know you. You got to be vulnerable with me. I need to be vulnerable with you. At the end of the day, it's about feeling safe um, and whatever that looks like. So for me, I already had a hard time, like, feeling turned on, like ready to just jump into something with someone, Um, you know, forget about the times where I had my whole phase with cis men. And like, I really wish that we could reverse that. I wish I could have gone through like the dry spell, like fast back then, and then jump into my whole phase now without a pandemic. But yeah, so for myself, I think what I have noticed hasn't been in like an intense, you know, I've my libido just shot up out of nowhere. It's just been like, I'm noticing that new things turn me on. And Mm. it's noticing people's bodies differently, noticing how people walk. It could just be like, (laughs) it's like, is this what young teenage boys go through? But it's like someone smells nice or like, their laugh or something and I'm like turned on I'm like all right cool like that's that's like your eyebrow did a thing and it's like well I'm ready you know so it's it's very little things that I've noticed I think okay I definitely masturbate more like that's I mean I live with three roommates so it's as much as I can fit in when people are not taking up the space beside my bedroom wall in the living room but I (laughs) I do notice that the urge to masturbate happens way more 
um, especially after the bottom growth happened, I was like, all right. I think because I was equally curious, like, ooh, let's use this new toy. Like, it's like a toy to me. Yeah, like, you want to play with more. You. And, you know, speaking of toys, like, it's exciting because now that I have that bottom growth, I'm noticing that there's all these, like, trans-specific toys uh, that exist really? out there, like, for people with bottom growth. I forget what it's called right now. Um, I can send you it after. I know that it, there's a shop in Montreal that carries it. And it's like this little, I don't know, it's kind of like the flashlight, uh-huh. but it's for trans folks and oh. gender nonconforming folks. So it's like a mini flashlight. And it provides a little bit of suction so that you can like slap some lube on and then use that. And it should provide enough stimulation. I haven't tried it myself, but it sounds really exciting. And if anyone wants to sponsor me and send me one, feel free. (laughs) (laughs) Jaden unfiltered. (laughs) Yes, please. I promise I'll give a really lengthy review. have uh, Have you tried any of the, like the satisfier or any of those types of models that like shoot in bubbles? I am looking at those. I have not tried those. I actually have like a mental list of suction toys that I want to try. Right. Um, vibrators are a bit of a hit or miss for me because I find that too much stimulation is a bit overwhelming in a way that I get anxious. So I'm still navigating mm-hmm. that and trying to find, you know, is it like a deeper rumble that's going to be better for me? I'm not too sure yet. But so that's in all ways, I feel like I'm like a little baby, just like tiptoeing into the world of like <laughs> sex positivity and kink and all of that stuff um but that's like another thing that I'm excited about is that there's toys made for my body specifically and all the changes that it's going through well that's amazing because I had never heard of that so I'll definitely try to find something and throw it in the description of this episode mm-hmm. for for people interested but yeah it sounds like with so much going on right now, so in the last year, you've undergone the bulk of your transition. Mm-hmm. And also in the last year, everything went upside down with the world. So yes. we had the COVID pandemic struck, and now there's been the Black Lives Matter resurgence, which is still mm-hmm. going strong, hopefully. And in the midst of it all, you are existing as a guess queer BIPOC human transitioning yes. through probably the most difficult <laughs> year. <laughs> Don't of, you know? Don't you know it? It's a lot. It's your, a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, how has this process been for you in terms of what's been going on with the world? Ooh, okay. I'm going to tie it into, you know, what I keep coming back to in terms of sexual liberation, because I think it's, extra important for Black folks right now to really think about pleasure in their bodies as a form of activism. So not just protesting um, the politics and protesting brutality in the streets and, and, you know, we see mutual aid happening and all of these move the ways that the movement is uh, manifesting itself around us. I feel like people are forgetting that you also need to look at rest as resistance, look at self-care as resistance, and look at pleasure as resistance. And, you know, this is coming from someone who, you know, read <laughs> read one chapter of pleasure activism and feels like I'm an expert on it now. I'm not. But, um, and to reference, it's pleasure activism from Adrienne Marie Brown. If you haven't read it or haven't heard of it, that one is excellent. Um, 
So her writing, I'm, I'm writing does, it down. <laughs> yeah, honestly, number one thing, and I flipped through it. So I've read one chapter, but I've also been like, oh, I'm too curious. I need to like go through the other cha- other chapters, oh. even if I'm not going to read the whole thing. So she references uh, Audre Lorde's the uses of the erotic uh, often throughout that book, from what I can see, other than the one to two chapters that I've read. But what stood out to me immediately is that she has this conversation um, with another educator slash activist, and they're talking about the fact that Black people need to reclaim their body in a way that's not just looking at the ways that colonial violence and trauma seem to be the narrative uh, that people tend to associate with Black culture and Blackness, and that's not who we are. We are complex, we have lineage, we have history, we have ancestry, and we have, we give you the culture. We literally give you everything that you look at around us. We have contributed to that. And so, you know, how are we celebrating our bodies? How are we celebrating ourselves in a way that we can feel joy, we can enjoy community, we can enjoy pleasure, and we can come back to the erotic because our bodies uh, have been used as an object of labor, We've been used as an object of people's fetish in a way that is detrimental to our well-being and, and our humanity. And uh, yeah, you know, our bodies have literally been sold and treated as objects. So how do we reclaim our access to our bodies uh, in a way that frees us, gives us that freedom? And that's kind of my entire, that's where I'm wrapped up. I live in this mentality right now where it's like, I am living resistance. I am living my ancestors' wildest dreams right now. Um, Who knows down the line in my ancestry, who was trans, who was genderqueer? I don't know that, but I get to live that right now for the sake of those ancestors that didn't get to have that freedom. So it sounds like with all the fuckery going on in the world, this may have also been a very powerful time for you to transition because of everything that's going on and because of being able to access a certain amount of power and resistance and activism as the world's kind of like undergoing a lot of change, hopefully, hopefully towards a better, just better politics uh, than, than we've, we've had and less of this neoliberal turbo fuckery. (laughs) You said it. Um, honestly, I think the number one thing for me is just like, it, it made me realize that this is, I don't even know what year we're on now of protesting the same shit. Like I've yeah. Yeah. been, uh, there's been a monumental change in my life since Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown that has stuck with me every year since. And this year it's like, I am getting my freedoms. I'm getting access to the surgery I've been waiting to have, even if I didn't think I was gonna get it. I've been thinking about it for many years, for over five years now. And to be able to get that in the middle of a pandemic, to be able to celebrate myself uh, in the middle of a global movement, then that's, I'm living my wildest dreams right now. And it's a big fuck you to, the systems around me that have told me that I'm nothing more than a source of labor and or that you I don't have exist. no value. 
that I don't exist. And I'm here to turn that around and tell them, no, you're actually, you're going to see me. You're going to hear me. And I'm going to live my life as loudly as possible at the expense of everyone else's comfort. I don't give a fuck. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, your existence is a form of resistance to exactly the, the oppression that's, that's been systemic and systematic. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully yeah. in its last dying breath. Honestly, I don't know if that will happen <laughs> in my lifetime. I am really, really hoping that we, we kick some of those bricks down and we carve out more, more change than we've ever seen in the past few years. Like I really want to see something stick for once and yeah. that don't yeah. forget this moment and that it's not just a moment that it's just going to be integrated into our lives in a way that you will not be able to, you know, go about your day without thinking about like, okay, how, how am I interacting and navigating with people in a way that's anti-oppressive and that I'm actually checking myself on my privileges and all of us yeah. need to be checking ourselves on our privileges, um, even myself. So that's just something I'm hoping will continue to be, uh, learned and unlearned. Perfect. So I want to go back to something that you were talking about a little, a little earlier when you were discussing kind of, you know, BIPOC bodies at the intersections of pleasure, kink and fetishism and a few of the other issues that have come about historically. Mm -hmm. So I've been having a lot of discussions recently as I've been interviewing more BIPOC about race play because mm -hmm. it exists in our kink and fetish communities but i don't know that certain types of race play can be consensual and i've been trying to you know to get some perspectives on this because i know there's people who probably practice this i'm specifically interested in the type of race play that accords dominance to white men mm -hmm. over bipoc bodies as submissives where, where the power in that dynamic is basically enacting white supremacy. And I just don't know if that can possibly be consensual. Oh, you are really touching on something that I've experienced many times. Uh, like I said, in that phase of my life where I was sleeping with cis men, they predominantly were white. And... Yeah, that's something that, you know, looking back now, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't have done and wouldn't have placed myself in certain situations because it was, as I understood now, not a space where I was going to be respected and not a space where my needs were considered and my boundaries um, were acknowledged or even asked for, you know, consent wasn't really something that we were talking about beforehand. And you know, that's on both parties. I didn't bring it up. Um, I didn't know any better. Um, you know, I didn't have that knowledge at the time. And you know, the people that I were, I was engaging with also didn't bring it up. So there was a lack of knowledge and lack of care about um, safety and aftercare and those kind of things. So I'm looking back on that and I'm thinking about the fact that you know, there were certain times where, I wonder if I should do a trigger warning. Hmm. Just like a mild one, you know, like it, it's definitely like mentions of 
non-consensual acts. So there was a couple moments where I remember, you know, someone decided to do anal without asking me and there was no lubrication. And so it was like, you know, their response after his response after was just like, oh, I, I, that was an accident. It was an honest mistake. And, you know, I can, I can fuck with an honest mistake if it's the one time, but within a couple minutes, it happens again, then you're absolutely not, um, that's not an honest mistake. So, you know, there was that. Another moment I remember, and this one is like, okay, I like a good face slap here and there, you know, but you gotta, you gotta build up to that. You can't just drop that on me. And so this guy got really into it and was doing all kinds of things that I was not into. You know, I don't think anyone's going to recognize who I'm talking about. So I'm going to just really describe the situation because I was laughing about it after, but it, you know, it was slightly, slightly traumatizing because he definitely slapped me multiple times really hard. And I was like, okay, do I fuck with this? And I'm like, I'm having an existential crisis in the middle of sex with this guy. And I'm like, was I into that? And I'm like, you're not into it. Like, if you're questioning it, you're not. So that happened. And, and uh, you know, other things around my chest, which I'm, I, when I had my chest, I was very sensitive about that. I didn't really want a lot of interaction. Um, there was virtually no sensitivity with my nipples anyway. So it was like, there's no point to me having someone interact with that area of my body. And so, you know, I've had a lot of people like grab my chest or slap my chest. And it's like, that is absolutely triggering for me. Like that was not a good time. And so, you know, I'm thinking of these moments and I'm just like, the fact that it was also with white men is not lost on me that they didn't care about my autonomy. They didn't care about aftercare they didn't care about my safety or respecting my body and so it's like what how were they really perceiving me in that moment if you're choosing to engage with me and you know we'd have like a nice date leading up to it and then we get you know into the thick of it and we're having sex and you don't care about even asking me what kind of foreplay I'm into like where was the foreplay first of all like <laughs> that is <laughs> absolutely not a separate and the fact that people think of foreplay as a separate component of being intimate with someone and having sex and enjoying play and all that kind of stuff. It's like foreplay is part of it. It is meshed right in with everything else that you, you're going to uh, do with that person. And so the fact that it's like viewed as optional to cis men um, has always been absolutely confusing to me. I don't understand it because if they had a clit, I feel like they would really understand why why foreplay is essential so that was something i was really upset about uh, well, back then they have they have an old, last... oversized clit that they don't know how to use <laughs> yeah, honestly oh yeah like that's why oh there's so many things that were done that i'm like why did they let that happen but at the same time i honestly i really thought that i was just exploring my interests that's what mm. i told myself and you know looking back i'm like oh my god you just didn't know how to set boundaries boo boo but um, I also remember in terms of like your, your question and leading into that a little more specific is that like having white men use like a collar on me um, and like cuffs and, and restraints and that kind of stuff. I remember when the collar and chain was used, I had this, I really, I think I had a little bit of disassociation where I was like, I'm kind of into this. I feel extremely guilty about it. I feel a little bit of shame. I feel more shame about the fact that it's a white man doing it to me. 
and the context isn't lost on me. And I swear to God, I left that that time. And it's someone I trusted at the time. So it's not like it was a stranger. It was someone that I was pretty close with. So there was a little bit of trust there, but there wasn't a conversation beforehand about the context and, and what that, you know, the weight of doing that. And I left that that night and I was like, oh man, my ancestors are definitely turning in their grave right now. Or at least that's how I felt. Like I was like, this doesn't feel right to, for me to let a white man engage with me and my body in that way. So I still, I'm still processing that because I was like, oof, that's the one thing that still, I think fucks with me a bit is that I don't know if I'll ever feel comfortable with a white person in general um, using that kind of, you know, like collars and restraints on me. Well, to start where you began, which is, your experiences with the cis white men that were just kind of oblivious to your needs is mm -hmm. clearly a demonstration of their privilege and not having had to ever concern themselves with that, both because of their whiteness and their maleness, if you will. Right. Okay. So I think, I mean, depending on, you know, how much learning is done, you can get to a place where, some of these things are considered ahead of time. So setting boundaries, right? If you're going to engage in a scene with somebody, set those boundaries ahead of time, learn about a person's triggers, learn what they like, what they don't like, and focus on their pleasure, not only your own. And this is like, this is essential to the sex positive communities yes. so that when it comes down to more immersive forms of play, like role play and BDSM, and you decide to put a collar on somebody, which I think is a very, very, strong act that requires quite a bit of commitment and you know for planning then yeah. you're engaged in a power dynamic that is built around consent so having said all that and having seen all of it and having participated and experienced it i still don't know if there's a place where where race play can be done consensually my thesis on this is this if you have a white dude who's willing to engage in a power dynamic, that's not just abstractly about power, about being master, which also comes from master slave, but mm -hmm. about enacting white supremacy over a BIPOC body. I question why that dude would want to do that unless there's a latent desire to be explicitly racist and take joy in that racism. So mm -hmm. that's, that's the question that I've been putting out there. And I, in the, the interview that I had before this one, I mean, yeah. I'm think I'm even continuing to think about it as you're talking about this. And I, I'm wondering if it would change if I was already in a long-term relationship with someone and we had built that trust and, um, we have an honest conversation about what they get out of it. You know, what do I get out of it and what are they getting out of it? Does that mesh does it are we on the same page or is there an understanding that you know what you get out of it as a white person can't be that you have dominance over a black body it can't be and would someone admit that even i don't know but, that, but that's the nature of race play right the whole nature of race play is built around yeah like racializing fetishizing and exercising a form of like white power over you know, a BIPOC body. So there's no yeah. way around it. And the only argument I've heard in favor of race play is that it 
like other forms of, of BDSM is it brings up the taboos so that we face them and deal with them in a healthy sort of sexual dynamic. Mm. But I just don't see that there's a, a possibility for that healthiness to happen so long yeah. as we're existing in a world where racism is still blatantly systemic and where white privilege, white dominance, white power, and white supremacy still reign. So at that point, mm -hmm. I think you're just you're accessing something that's still very raw and very much yeah. alive. Uh, even if it isn't, even, even if, uh, you know, we started to move away from, mm -hmm. how do I want to word this? I feel like even if we were able to address racism as a collective and, you know, we start unlearning and addressing uh, things in a way that healing can happen, you know, there's a space for healing to happen. I still don't know yeah, like you're saying, if there's going to be a place for this ever, like maybe, you know, we're past the point of having people engage in race play, because at this point, it's raw right now, even if we get to a point where we, we look back and we're like, wow, we've come so far, you know, we, we've uh, been able to heal some of the wounds and, and um, the history that has happened. I still feel like it's going, why would we want to keep that then? Why would we want to still engage in that um, when it's going to mm -hmm. remind us of a time where yeah. black bodies um, were treated like they were inhumane, like they weren't valued, they weren't valued as human beings. So it's just, yeah, I, I don't know if there's a place for it. I feel like I'm, I can't see myself ever engaging in that. I wouldn't judge any other black person if they wanted to engage in that i just hope that there would have been um an honest conversation and an understanding that it would be near impossible for it to not for it to be completely healthy yeah that's, i'm not sure that, that's kind I'm of my sure. feeling around it too because i mean ds relationships are already rooted in in the the dialectic of slavery it's master slave mm -hmm. but because that's so far removed in some ways from our reality today that's not to say that forms of slavery don't exist today they do mm -hmm. but that type of dialectic relationship we're able to access because it's still taboo today but because it's far removed from our direct let's say experiences mm -hmm. but then again there's also nazi play which again has a lot of yeah. fucked upness around it and that's still historically removed from us, not as, as far back as, as, as slavery, but you might be right. There might not be a place or time where healthy engagement is possible. I don't this know. is so hard to talk about because as we're talking about, I'm also like, I really like being a submissive in the ways that I've experienced it so far. I love loss of control. I like someone dominating me and that is something that i don't want to have to only be able to experience that with other black people or you know other bipoc folks like i really want to be able to do that with anyone that i'm attracted to that i feel safe with but can i ever feel completely safe doing that with other white folks i'm not sure but i don't want to have to limit right well, I think you that know, that part fun. that part of it takes a lot of trust and vulnerability, mm -hmm. and maybe your defenses are up for a good reason against you know white folks, white men, yeah. and there's still a possibility for you to engage in DS relationships there. But mm -hmm. again, race plays its own animal, and I think the desire oh, yeah. to to access white supremacy as a power source in your dynamic is probably indicative that you have a desire for that power, or or you want to 
I don't know. I don't, I don't like, I wouldn't want to do anything sexually that I'm not into necessarily. Right. So if I'm not into exercising white supremacy, then why would I want to do that in the bedroom? That's my question. Yeah. And it could be really telling of the people that um, that is their sole interest and something that they pursue heavily with other people, black people. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, red flag. We've, uh, we've harped on about this for a while, (laughs) but uh, let's go back to the top surgery. Let's talk about your top surgery. We haven't talked about it yet. And this is something that's still fresh. Mm-hmm. So literally, I'd like to know from your experience, since you've just undergone top surgery, what that process was like. And now with hindsight, you could probably go back hypothetically and tell yourself a few things. So mm-hmm. I want this to be something that other people who are interested in top surgery and transitioning to be able to listen to and have a little bit of understanding from someone else's experience what to expect what you've gone through and what are the benefits of your hindsight oh okay a three-parter so (laughs) (laughs) i'll say that the healing process was a lot smoother than i thought it was to be um in terms of like physical side of things i did not have any complications so i have been able to navigate loss of uh, upper body mobility pretty well thanks to having people around me um, to help me out and for community support. So that's something I would strongly recommend is reach out to as many people as possible um, if that's something you feel safe doing. And that's something I was really comfortable doing just because I've built such a community around me. So, you know, having food, uh, supply, people cooking for me, people dropping off care packages. Um, yeah, even just like having someone help me navigate how to set my room up uh, so that I could feel comfortable. That was, that was all the things that I was really concerned about. The actual healing process, I wasn't really worried about. Um, but I'm kind of, I don't know how to word this. I'm not, I don't want to say disappointed. But I'm, I think I'm a little bit surprised that I didn't have this kind of uh, hugely emotional moment where like I saw my, my uh, body for the first time after the, the bandages were off and they got let me see like the fresh scars. Like I didn't have this like, oh my God, I've been waiting for this. My whole life. I didn't have that moment that a lot of people <laughs> post in their stories. And I was like, am I a fake trans? You know? (laughs) Oh my God. I didn't have like my Disney, like, Oh my God, this is everything I wanted. And I cried. Maybe it's the testosterone. I haven't been able to cry as easily. And that kind of. Yeah. Will said the same thing. Yeah. I thought it was a joke that, you know, like (laughs) cis men don't cry as easily because their tear ducts shrink or something. (laughs) And I was like, I'm so emotional. That's not going to be a thing. And it's like, Oh my God. I could probably watch, you know, someone's pet die in front of me. I would, I would just be like, that is so sad. Hmm. You want to get a burger? You know, like, I don't feel, I don't feel like, <laughs> can you smoke that bad? <laughs> but like, I just don't feel like I can just like cry uh, on demand anymore. But um, I think like, I'm, that's something that I'm really surprised about. It's just kind of been this, uh, 
this understanding that I'm finally where I needed to be and this feels right. And it just kind of like something just clicked into place in my head and I didn't cry. I didn't have this like emotional journey that I went on throughout the, the first month of healing. I just, it was just this acceptance that I'm, this is where I needed to be. Right. So I don't know. I guess I'm just saying that so that people don't feel uh, weirded out that you don't have to have this movie moment where, you know, you have this, this huge cry session. Mm. It's really emotional for me. It just feels like my mental state is in a balance. I feel grounded for the first time in my life, in my entire life of being neurodivergent and dealing with trauma. I feel like I can actually handle things now. I have more processing space in my head to not fixate on my body in a way that's detrimental it's like I can actually just live in the present and live in real life outside of my head so those are the major things that um, I've noticed with this that sounds like it was the most rewarding experience was coming to a place that you've wanted to be in and your I identity. visualized, yeah, and I visualized for so long. And when I went to my first Pride, my first Pride was World Pride. So I believe that was 2014, I'm And, you know, I was constantly, every year that I went to Pride after that, I just felt this immense envy and jealousy of people that were living their truth, that were living as vibrantly as they wanted to. And I didn't feel like I could access that, you know, this whole time I could have just dressed the way I wanted and, and done whatever I wanted, but I uh, didn't feel like I could. So it's, I'm at this point where I'm like, okay, it's exciting to put clothes on my body. It's exciting to wake up and do basic tasks, but I don't have like my chest moving around and, you know, working out was something that became like a grounding technique for me and I never liked even picking up a weight or thinking about a workout so for me that's exciting to be like "Ooh, I'm a bulk up leg day's coming up let's go and like leg day means something different now I'm really trying to make sure my strap game is gonna be crisp oh, <laughs> yeah. forward, okay oh, like yeah. let's go next summer Ooh. they're not ready they're not ready the day thems are not prepared they're not prepared. so then let me ask you this what was yeah in this process, then what was the most challenging aspect of going through the, through the surgery? Okay, so the hindsight piece, I would say, looking back, I think the isolation, like I think, especially because I was doing it in a time where you have to quarantine, and uh, I was a little more vulnerable because I'm healing from a major surgery. So, you know, not being able to celebrate Pride weekend, even though it was virtual for the most yeah. part, right? Yeah. You're like, it's so funny that like, this is the first Pride I would have had feeling good in my body and being able to celebrate myself. And it's right. like, <laughs> pandemic came in like the Kool-Aid man and fucking knocked that dream <laughs> off the shelf. Like, fuck me, right? And then like, not being able to see my friends, not even being able to be around other trans and gender diverse people in my yeah. life and not being able to like celebrate with them it's like fuck that are you kidding me I'm in bed like crying but not crying I call them trans tears so it's like where you're crying <laughs> but you're crying you're crying internally yeah. um I'm coining that that's mine don't be They're taking it trans tears hashtag trans tears <laughs> yeah so like, you know that was that was for me it did take a mental toll oh the post-op depression in hindsight did mm -hmm. not prepare for that did not book a therapy session um if 
you have access to that, I would highly recommend or have someone that you trust to be able to call at a moment's notice because that was heavy. It's one, your body's going through a major, a massive trauma that it's not really able, it's trying to process that. And then you're emotionally and mentally trying to process that. And so your energy is completely off. Um, and your mental state could be affected if you're prone to depressive states. Um, if you're neurodivergent, that's something to be, I think, aware of. And I didn't predict that. So when it happened, I just felt really shitty. And it was so left field for me because I was in a really good mental place just before that. And then the post-op depression happened. Um, and, you know, I just was lashing out a lot more. I was kind of choosing to isolate more than I should have. And I wasn't doing anything that was taking me out of that mindset. So I was literally just stewing in my own uh, shitty mental state. So hmm. Don't do what I did. <laughs> have some emotional supports in place. Uh, I'm an advocate for that. Please have a plan of people you can call and rely on. So then I think the last bit of this that I'd like to ask you about is how did the process start? How does one go about in this process? So for some time, you wanted this surgery. You had to look up some resources. You probably mm -hmm. had to set up some appointments. This is going to be specific, obviously, to the Ontario healthcare system. But yes. you, know, you had to probably get some sort of screening done. And I know nothing about this process. Like What leads, <laughs> up, what leads up to you booking that surgery? And what yeah. can you anticipate? Yes. So my process was pretty streamlined. Um, I am OHIP covered. So what happens is you have a conversation with your doctor. Um, hopefully your doctor is trans friendly uh, and is on board. So she already was. We knew that this was going to happen. I just didn't know when. And when I brought it up to her, she basically just kind of mapped out First of all, what permanent changes I needed to consider in terms of, you know, are you planning on conceiving at some point in your life? Is that something you want to do? Um, so you may have to think about freezing your eggs or freeze, you know, like that's something to think of. She went through the permanent changes. She went through the potential side effects of both tea and then, of course, top surgery and what could happen. And in terms of the process, it was like we wrote a letter together. I got a template from uh, a nurse in the city that had created one. Uh, I gave it to my doctor. We filled it out together. You really got to think about like, they ask you what OHIP wants to know is just how long have you been thinking about, uh, have you been struggling with uh, dysphoria? How long have you, um, what are the effects on your life of, of um, that uh, contribute to you wanting this surgery? So, you know, I talked about my mental state. I talked about um, being depressed and like, you know, we really like embellished it a bit. I mean, it was bad. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like my life has definitely been affected by not by living in this body in a way that that wasn't home to me, but we added more things just so it's like, I was so worried they were going to reject me. I was like, let's give them every reason yeah, I mean, possible. You know, that's, that's how you write a grant application. Back just, it. That's how, yeah. that's how you write a resume. You have yeah. to make it seem like this is the most, this exactly. is exactly right? yeah. you want to plug all your trauma in that letter go <laughs> ahead but yeah. so that's what we did we wrote a letter we sent it on they uh, um approved and then the waiting process began so to between the time of submitting the letter uh to ohip for coverage that took about three months if i'm remembering correctly and then after that 
then you do you should have a few clinics in mind you know i went to grs in montreal i cannot stress it enough if you are able to get to montreal i would highly recommend it's a private clinic um and uh the care team there it was absolutely amazing so i i had a clinic in mind and after that we submitted my request to the clinic that i wanted to get my surgery with them and then that took about took about six months to my surgery date um and then when i got the date it was march of the following year and then of course that changed when the pandemic literally i'm not gonna lie this part kills me still like three days before i was supposed to get surgery quarantine started wow. that was devastating wow. um three days three i had just done my phone call with the surgeon we went through everything together and then the pandemic so years in and, years of you like building up to this moment gets oh i was mad depressed after that wow. um but <laughs> so that that's kind of like you know you get six six eight, eight like you up to a year it really depends and the clinic was really fast about getting my surgery date in, but I don't know what, you know, maybe a public hospital would be like, right? So it's a private clinic versus how long is the wait for a public hospital? It could be longer. So that's something to consider. But as long as you have a doctor that's uh, willing to advocate for you and willing to support you throughout the process, I think that's the main thing uh, that helped me. So I didn't have to do a lot of self-advocating. My doctor was on board. So that was the that was the whole process. After that, it was just planning, how am I gonna get to Montreal? um and uh your home care or if you're staying to recover at a hospital or um what uh what do they use for do you get prescribed medication after the surgery probably painkillers i imagine yes so i am uh i have a pretty good pain tolerance mm. so <laughs> you know i can wink, i can wink. handle <laughs> i can it's handle a fair <laughs> I can handle a fair bit of pain. So for me, I didn't end up taking the, what is it, oxycodone. I didn't touch that, didn't want to touch it. I was like, fuck that shit. So I uh, was fine with just the extra strength Tylenol. You take mm. that about four times. And then there was an anti-inflammatory that they prescribed as well. So I took that twice a day. And that was it. That's all you needed. For, well, that's all I needed to recover. Mm. Um, the oxycodone is just there if you are really struggling with the pain. I will say it was not as bad. It's like getting a tattoo. You were like, oh my God, it hurts so bad. It depends on where on the body you're getting it. Like there was so yeah. much numbness here that I didn't really feel that much. Um, ice packs are your friend. But that that was it. It's not as heavy as I thought. I thought they were going to give me like, I guess yeah. oxy is pretty heavy. <laughs> Did they offer you oxy? I'm just curious. They automatically prescribe that because uh, yeah, they can't yeah. predict, right? They don't know because yeah. the first day they give you that already. Like you're on it coming out of surgery. Like <clears throat> you take that and afterwards you can decide if you continue to take it, but you pay for that. Um, yeah. Cause the, I know, I know that they've been trying to prescribe less anything that, that has codeine in it. Right. They've mm -hmm. been trying to prescribe less of it because of the addiction factor. And yeah. also, I mean, you're talking about a process of, you know, going through your life, developing certain mental health issues as a result of what's clinically described as gender dysphoria, right? Mm. And, you know, if you go through the mental health care system, you might be prescribed other medications to deal with anxiety and depression that are, that are formed as a result of that. So having codeine given to you can also 
intersect weirdly with those yeah. types of medications if you're on anything like SSRIs or, you know. Yeah, that's something else. to consider for sure. I think another thing I'm thinking of too is that I was able to be honest with my doctor, and it's something I forgot to mention a moment ago, is that I was able to tell her that I am not transitioning to be a man. And I was very yeah. adamant about that, that we could put that in the letter, we could leave it out of the letter, I don't care, but what you need to know is that I am not interested in that. So you have to be comfortable with letting me do testosterone and get this surgery and like, don't be a gatekeeper about it. Um, I don't want to transition fully. So I think depending on your doctor, I hope that people will be able to be honest about the fact that they may not want to be on testosterone for a long time or that they don't have plans to associate with being like a trans man or a trans woman or anything like that. But you may have to, I guess, lie um, in the letter to say that you are going to like, I think I had to say that, that I'm transitioning um, F to M, female yeah, to male. Yeah, yeah. So, but that didn't bother me, but for someone that doesn't want to say that or is uncomfortable with that, just something to keep in mind. It's a lot easier to go through the process. Yeah. Um, they don't have an understanding of, of course yeah you're dealing with like a, transition. a rigid uh you know healthcare system that is barely trying to catch up with you know some yeah. of the requests that are being made of them so mm -hmm. i can i can see the necessity for that yeah well yeah Jaden, <laughs> we've covered so much oh my god i didn't even think you were gonna get that much out of me wow 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 <laughs> so this is oh. this is the time for that Final segment is our sexy story. Do you have anything, any wild, story. sexy, outrageous story that you'd like to share? No, I don't. I don't yet, but I'm hoping that after this pandemic is over, I'm going to have a whole slew of sexy stories to share with people. And I am very open on my Instagram. So maybe not to that extent. One day I might have a private Instagram where. I do fun, I guess, sexier things on it, but that's for future me to figure out. How about this? Let's, <laughs> let's frame it this way. It seems like you're like so ready now to explore things mm -hmm. because of the place that you're at. Yes. So instead of a sexy story from your past, which maybe you don't want to yeah. access or you don't care about, or you want to just like, <laughs> care about. you want to just, yeah, you want to rewrite with yeah, fresh yeah, experiences. Yeah. Why don't we do this? Why don't we talk about a fantasy? Tell me a sexy story, like what it is that you want when this pandemic's over and you're oh, able to get ooh. to that party. Oh my goodness. <laughs> paint, paint a picture, if you will. Paint a picture. I mean, I picture just being in a space where there's going to be, I guess, like a medley of toys to choose from and kink. I don't know. Role play would be fun to just like a night where it's like everyone gets to experience their fantasies and find like, I don't know how this would work in an ideal world that everyone find the person that is interested in a thing that they want to try. I'm sure that's not, maybe that's how it goes, but that's my ideal that I would like find somebody that's like, oh yeah, I'm just as curious about um, like restraints and kink and dominating somebody. Like, I think like I'm at this, like if there's like tears, I'm like at the low level of kink and I'm like, how far am I willing to go? And I feel like that kind of night, I would be willing to like test that, I think. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So toys. <laughs> I wish, I, wish I had something spicier for you, but like for now it's like sriracha, but maybe, you know. It's all good. Like... <laughs> we'll, we'll, give, we'll give it a few months and yeah, yeah, yeah. we can check in at some point later on and we'll see we'll see where you're at once things are actually open and you're able yeah. to access these parties and the sex clubs are reopened <laughs> you'll have a better picture I'm yes i um, promise i will keep a jalapeno level of spice on the radar hopefully right. so if the universe sends it my way well then this is your chance to shout out everywhere that you would like to be found Oh, it's literally only one spot. Find me on Instagram at Jaden Unfiltered. So that's J-A-D-E-N, not J-A-Y-D-E-N, as people spell it, Unfiltered. Um, and that's where you'll find me. I post a lot of, I guess, still trying to like recalibrate what my brand is on there, but I talk about self-care, mental health. Um, like I said, I am uh, doing a lot more facilitation. So uh, hit me up if you need someone to speak to your school um, or a part of your student association about anything self-care related or wellness. That's something that I have a focus on uh, specifically for QT BIPOC folks. So yeah, that's where you'll find me and resources and uh, me just being unfiltered. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for everything. Thank and you. This conversation. This was <laughs> It was so chaotic but zesty. It was great. It was great. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the Navi to stimulate your thinking.